And greetings and welcome to the Dividing... I should have closed that door. I didn't close that door. Watch this. This is, You want to know how live we are? <laughs> not only that, not only do I have to close the door for that, but um, the hard drive on a certain piece of equipment in another room uh, needs to be replaced. And there's a guy who works on here that knows about that, but he hasn't done it for like months and so it, everyone swallows, just starts no, beeping, beeping, beeping. Here. It's really annoying, and it's beeping, so I'd have to close the door anyways. I won't mention who it is because I'm supposed to be nice to him. <laughs> anyway, we're throwing a quick a program in here, very, very quick, because um, I was looking at my travel. I, I started, it's a nine-day trip, which is barely a trip for me these days. I think May is 33 days, so yeah. Um, Nine-day trip uh, up to Salt Lake City and back via Cedar City. Uh, I'll be speaking at Southern Utah University uh, twice, Wednesday and Thursday of this week. And then Saturday is the debate in Salt Lake City. I'll be preaching uh, twice on Sunday. And uh, then on Monday, I'll be just a nobody attending uh, the celebration of 25 years of ministry in Salt Lake City for Jason Wallace, uh, who also uh, seems to like to rent sports cars uh, to do his, you know, the, the people who used to drive around or, or ride around and do circuit preaching were na- mainly the Methodists. Um, but this is a Presbyterian doing the circuit riding, driving thing. Anyways, that'll be on Monday in Salt Lake City. 25 years of ministry. He's a youngin, you know, we're, we're doing 40, he's doing 25, you know, but uh, many of you have benefited from uh, the cooperation between us and, uh, and Jason Wallace up in Salt Lake City, Utah, and um, we used to do a lot more debates <laughs> until the last one we did. <laughs> no, I don't mean, I don't mean the one, I don't mean the, the radiator fluid one. Um, we used to do a lot of Mormon debates in Salt Lake City. And, um, and then we debated um, Dr. Potter. And, um, y- you know, when, when the guy walked in the room, I, I went, hmm? <laughs> I'd never met a Mormon with a no war in Iraq thing on his backpack and earrings. Um, and it, that was a very, very interesting debate. And of course, uh, Dennis Potter is now Kelly Potter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was, um, yeah, that was, that was really, really, that was a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. And it was after that debate that I had a guy, I don't know who it was. A guy came up to me. I remember what side of the, it's really weird. I can see the room. It's over on this side of the stage. This guy comes up to me and he says, I've attended all the debates you all have put on up here. And he says, I want to ask you to please stop debating Mormons up here. And I'm like, what? And he's like, um, we don't have anyone who can debate you. It doesn't make you right, but we don't have anyone who can debate you. And so we would, I just think the right thing to do is you stop debating words. I guess he, he got to somebody because <coughs> that was pretty much it. 
uh, for the Mormon debates in Salt Lake City for a long, long time. And um, especially once you had Kelly Potter. <laughs> Just sort of like, yeah, okay. That's how things go. So uh, that's what's coming up this uh, uh, this this weekend. Um, There's a little bit of weather coming through. It doesn't look like more than an inch, at most two inches of snow um, at any point in time. And, uh, so I, you know, I-15 and stuff should be fine. I, I should be okay. I'm hoping, um, but it'll be, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's Utah and it's the end of March, beginning of April, though. I, I don't, I'm not sure I could even hear Rich if he did answer, but I don't think we ever got snowed on. In fact, we normally had really nice weather, um, for almost every general, we dodged all sorts of stuff because the old saying was when the saints meet, the heavens weep. And yet, I I don't remember. We may have had a few rain showers, but I don't remember any snow. For example, I remember a couple times it was pretty nippy, but then other times it was really nice and warm. So I don't know. There was one in early April that um, yeah, put your earpiece in. Yes, there there was one in early April where we really got surprised, and it was just freezing. We had to run across the street to the mall and buy jackets. Yep. Who yep. yep. Remember this? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yep. So we didn't you're right. On one time. Yep. That's true. That's you're right. We had to run over when there was still a mall there. There isn't anymore. Um, but uh, I don't know how they did that, by the way. I mean, that was a big mall. I mean, it was it was huge, and and it's gone. Um, I wonder. I wonder if the earthquake had anything to do with that. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, yeah, I think yeah, I, I do remember that now. I, I do remember now that there was one time that we got caught. Um, but uh, other than that, we normally had really good weather. So anyways, that's what's coming up. And uh, I will be on the first leg of my journey north. Of course, back when we were young, we did that in one shot. And uh, I will do it in three shots. <laughs> now that I'm older and wiser and... Um, and um, do not want to cause my guardian angel any more um, heart attacks than I already have when I was younger uh, doing stupid stuff like that. So that's where we're going. So that's why we threw it in here today uh, was I'm a little concerned that I, I won't have time. I might still have time and it all sort of depends on how big a, um, yeah, right. Uh, how big, a response, you know, maybe there's maybe something I say today, who knows, we'll have some type of response and we need to respond to it and we'll do something then. We'll see. Um, we'll see. The, 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 we haven't even started, we haven't gotten the bed out yet. So th- th- there's no, there's no, uh, uh, studio in the new unit yet, but I did get a new light. Uh, so we can, we can do it. We will be doing program from up there. Uh, don't worry, but it'll just be at the kitchen table as it has always been, except, it's a different kitchen table. Uh, and just a quick reminder, uh, we are still letting you know of our, our need to uh, uh, be able to, to do the studio, to finish paying off the unit, uh, and things like that. And so if you go to donate at aomin.org, there's a, well, if you go to aomin.org, there's a donate thing. There's a pull-down menu, and there's a, the bottom one is the uh, traveling studio fund raiser. And we, we still are hoping, uh, will, I, I believe, have some uh, things to um, 
make available to people in the future uh, to help with that uh, fundraising as well. So keep that in, uh, in mind. I said on the last program that I- I'm still, this book is sort of to me, uh, the obscurity of scripture by Casey Chalk. Um, it's, it's, it reminds me of how often you see on Twitter, someone saying, making a comment, they said the quiet part out loud. And it's true. Um, the obscurity of scripture, it, it still surprises me. I mean, okay. The old style Roman Catholics, the, uh, pre-Vatican II, the um, papal syllabus of errors, Roman Catholics would have spoken this way clearly. Sure, the obscurity of Scripture. Yeah, you bet. You can't. You that, that's it's too dangerous for you to read that stuff by yourself. You know, you need the church. But one of the tricks of the modern Roman Catholic apologetics movement is to use our language. Um, you know, for example, nobody um, utilized the kind of vocabulary and language before Scott Hahn that Scott Hahn uses. You know, Scott Hahn has, has tried to transport so much Presbyterianism straight across that there are Roman Catholics that, that go, eh, they're really not, yeah. Um, but there's, there was really a concerted effort early on by Catholic answers to utilize language that would, um, emphasize similarities, shall we say. And now we have the obscurity of scripture. And I made the comment on the last program that there were some problems, uh, with the book. And I, I don't know if uh, Casey, I don't get the feeling that Casey Chalk's going to care one way or the other. But um, I did want to respond to the places where I was mentioned in the book. There was no interaction with any of my arguments in the book. Just really bland references. So here's, here's first of them. This is Kindle edition. I didn't bother to look to see if it actually, because most of the time, you, you probably have the same experience I do. Most of the time, yeah, it's not gonna, it's not gonna match up. Yeah, the Kindle says page one seventy one of three sixty three. There's nothing on page one seventy one in the actual print book. <laughs> um, so, uh, and there's no index. Wow, that's interesting. There is no index at all in this book. So looking up where this would be, I could find it, but I'm, I'm not overly concerned about one or the other. So in, in the Kindle edition, it's page, uh, page 171 quote, other times the allegation can be a bit more pointed exchanging the first person plural. We for the third person plural, they, and even the second person you, for example, Reformed pastor Sam Storms observes that some people hold erroneous interpretations of the Bible knowingly out of fear of some negative consequence or to justify their own sin, personal prejudice, lack of education, laziness, or some other factor. Reformed historian D.G. Hart, in turn, has labeled Catholics, has 
in turn, has labeled Catholics of being intentionally elusive and Jesuitical in their interpretations of the Bible. I don't think that was written correctly. Could be a typo in the Kindle edition. Even more directly, popular Reformed apologist, well, <laughs> well, it used to be popular, popular Reformed apologist James White has accused those who reject Protestant interpretations of Scripture in favor of Catholic ones of being ignorant of Scripture and even, quote, traitors to the gospel, end quote. I, I read that, and I went, hmm. Um, there are all sorts of Protestant interpretations of Scripture that I disagree with all the time, so that, that's not really my language. And I wouldn't speak of Protestant interpretations and in favor of Catholic ones, as if there's just all bunches of them, which there are, because Rome wants to, on the one side, say you can't understand Scripture without our guidance, and then on the other hand say, oh, it could mean this, it could mean that. Well, we don't know. There's, there's never been an infallible interpretation given, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, which is part of a very frustrating so I thought, hmm, this is strange. And so I, I clicked on the, on the um, link. It's footnote number 36. And it says, there's, there's two, James White. And then the article is Jason Stellman's Unmitigated Disaster, Alpha Omega Ministries, October 4th, 2014. And then it says, see James White, response to Jason Stellman, Alvin Omega Ministries, July 25th, 2012. So there's two blog articles that are referenced. The first one, if you click on it, it doesn't come up. And that's because, and I found out just today, uh, that in, um, I don't know how you do this, copying it over, but uh, a dash was missed in the first reference. So if uh, Mr. Chalk does happen to be informed of this, um, it's Jason Dash Stellman's Dash Unmitigated Dash Disaster. That the one before unmitigated has been lost, and so the link doesn't work. So again, I haven't checked the printed edition to see if it has the same problem. But what's interesting is it says C. James White response to Jason Stellman, July twenty fifth, twenty twelve. That's not me. Click on it. It's Turretin fan. Uh, Turretin fan is the one that uh, wrote the July 25th, 2012 article. So that wasn't me. And I don't think the word trader appeared in there. Uh, instead, um, that appears in the first article, which is actually from two years later. Uh, this is, um, the conversion takes place in 2012, I guess. And in 2014, evidently I was in Ukraine and if that sounds odd to you, given what's going on there, um, I used to go there all the time um, before the war started. And I did find the term traitor. But here's, you know, look it up yourself. Um, here, here's, here's the context. And this is sometimes, this is what makes me sometimes go, why do people put stuff like this in books? I, don't they think people are going to check it out? Anyway. Uh, Stellman had written, 
The last two years have brought me almost nothing but loss. Most of my fellow alumni and former professors at Westminster Seminary no longer speak to me. To which I responded, excuse me, but aside from seeking to bring you to repentance, why should they? And given your utter collapse into Roman solipsism, so that you can read Indulgentiarum Doctrina, one of the most offensive sub-Christian apostolic documents ever produced, and respond with, well, if there is a papacy, then it follows, why should anyone invest the effort? Now remember, for those of you, this was right before the country started falling apart and the divisions started taking place. And right as safe spaces started to pop up and all the weirdness that we're now dealing with. And back then, you could talk to people directly. And as everyone knew who was reading this article, Jason Stellman had come to this office, had walked right behind that camera there, right through that door, and sat in that office right over there. And I had been very straightforward with him. Uh, we had discussed Sola Scriptura, but then I had been very straightforward with him. I had said, you're a Presbyterian minister. You, hold, you have professed to hold the Westminster Confession of Faith. You have preached that your sins are forgiven uh, and that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to you. That's how you have peace with God, and that's what you've told other people, and that's what you've preached at funerals and everything else. And you are telling me that this drivel that you've got about what, what happened after the last apostles died is sufficient to cause you to abandon all of that, to deny the gospel of grace, and to climb onto the penitential treadmill where you're, you're always going, but you never get there. Because the reason for the uncertainty of the state of grace lies in just this, that no one can know with certainty they fulfilled all the conditions which are necessary for achieving justification according to Ludwig Ott. That's a quotation. I think it was probably straight up accurate there. Um, so I was straightforward with him. And I said, hey, and by the way, if you cross the Tiber, you need to go all the way. Don't do any of this liberal, liberal stuff. Uh, if you're going to become Roman Catholic, then you need to do the Mary stuff. And you go all the way. So I've been very, very straightforward with him. And um, uh, I would hope that he would admit that that was the case. I haven't heard of I haven't heard of a whisper about Jason Stellman in many, many years. I have no earthly idea what he's up to. I don't know if the Drunken Ex-Pastors podcast is uh, still a thing or not. Uh, let's hope it isn't, but it might be. <clears throat> anyway, so there was a background to all this conversation. Then he wrote, so Jason Stellman wrote, I am denied entrance into the church I planted where my family still attends on Sundays. God bless him. That's my commentary. I wasn't even allowed to attend the Christmas Eve service last year and just sit and sing the hymns. To most of my old Calvinistic friends, I am simply a traitor to the gospel. So who wrote traitor to the gospel? Jason Stellman did. And so I'm responding to his language and I say, of course, how else could it be? Apostasy has consequences. You abandon your vows, deny the gospel of grace, embrace the papal system, and promote it by your speeches and writings, and think you will be welcome in the church you almost single-handedly crippled? Your very presence would be divisive, troubling, and distracting, even if you didn't say a word. 
But can't you see at your presence, given your positive profession of Rome's teachings, would be a breach of the fellowship of the church? Your final sentence truly explains it all. You are a traitor to the gospel, Jason. I warned you of that in my office. I made it clear, remember? You actually believe that to be true. Apostasy has consequences. You are surprised that we find you someone who needs to repent and abandon your error? That the church you had been entrusted with leading would rather not have a shepherd-turned-wolf wandering amongst the sheep? Is that really all that difficult to understand? So, you know, I, I just get the feeling that Chalk, all Chalk knows about anything we've done on Sola Scriptura is not the, who knows how many debates we've done with Roman Catholics on the topic, but just that article, didn't even get the other article's author right, um, says right there on the website, Turretin fan, by the way. But we're not, we're not talking about Sola Scriptura here. I mean, okay, it's one of the many things, but that's not what you're talking about. He's the one who's complaining that to most of my old Calvinistic friends, I am simply a traitor to the gospel. And I'm explaining, well, why would that be? You, you were once a, a minister. I mean, this would be like being, well, anyway. The point is, I was using his language. And so I don't understand why, in the context of, even more directly, popular Reformed apologist James White has accused those, that's a plural, this is an individual person, who reject Protestant interpretations of Scripture in favor of Catholic ones of being ignorant of Scripture and even traitors to the gospel. Um, that would only be relevant to a ordained minister who once professed fidelity to the gospel and then threw it all away, which is what Jason Stellman did. So that was like, uh, okay, that's a little bit weird. Um, you know, a couple problems with the citations and it's somebody else uh, that actually ends up being uh, cited here. And then the only other reference um, is found uh, page 329 of 363. Again, who knows whether that's even close. And this is under uh, objection number nine. No magisterial consensus on what counts as magisterial or tradition. And I'm quoting from the book now. Finally, many Protestants object that there is no consensus among Catholics regarding what counts as authoritative magisterial teaching or authoritative tradition. Well, obviously, if it's been dogmatized, um, but normally this objection is that the claim of tradition is this wonderfully nebulous thing. And so I can, I can debate Jerry Mattatix and I can quote from Tertullian and he can quote from Tertullian and what he quotes from Tertullian is support of tradition. And what I quote from Tertullian isn't support of tradition. And he can just dismiss my citations, but I allegedly have to accept the authority of his um, or anything in the early church fathers. Cause we'll cite, we'll cite popes against later popes. Ah, it's not part of tradition. So you've got this, Really, really nebulous 
concept of tradition. And when you ask, well, what is the oral tradition passed on from the apostles? Well, that only comes to light when the church is led to make clear dogmatic definitions. And so evidently the last time that there was a real need to know something of this body of tradition handed on by the apostles to the church was in the defining of the bodily assumption of Mary. I don't know about you, but there's, there's a bunch of topics these days that if there was some kind of apostolic tradition, uh, it'd be really nice to know well, what apostles said it. How was this passed down to us? Uh, how long has this been known? Uh, you know, there's lots of, lots of stuff going on in the world today. And instead, we're getting Francis's liberation theology. You really think liberation theology came from the apostles? Nope. I don't. <laughs> I, I think most of you probably recognize you wouldn't want to be put in a position of trying to prove that. Anyway, um, so I, I go back to reading here. Addressing the former evangelical scholars Norman Geiser and Ralph McKenzie rhetorically argue If an infallible teaching magisterium is needed to overcome the conflicting interpretations of Scripture, why is it that even these supposedly fallible, decisive declarations of the magisterium are also subject to conflicting interpretations? The two authors claim that these opposing interpretations, which are not universally accepted among Catholics, demonstrate the indecisive nature of supposedly infallible pronouncements. They also say somewhat similar regarding tradition. Quote, Apostolic tradition is nebulous, as has often been pointed out. Never has the Roman Catholic Church given a complete and exhaustive list of the contents of oral tradition. It has not dared to do so because this oral tradition is such a nebulous entity. That is to say, even if all extra-biblical revelation definitely exists somewhere in some tradition, as Catholics claim, which ones these are has nowhere been declared. That's end of the quotation from Geiser and McKenzie. And then... Similar arguments can be found in other contemporary critiques of Catholicism, including Roman but not Catholic by Collins and Walls, and the writings of Protestant apologist James White. And that's it. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, it, it's, a, it's, a valid, it's a valid point. It, it's, it's valid. There's not really... Uh, no, we could interact with what his argument is here, but that's, that's all it says that that's all they're all, that's all there is for me. So, um, and it, as I was looking this up, I, I couldn't help, but, um, notice once again, and, and it's been a long, 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 long time since I have mentioned this at all. But uh, first of all, <laughs> it is it is interesting. I I saw something on Twitter where someone was saying something about purgatory and Credo magazine. It rang a faint little bell, and then as I was looking for this, the bell started became a gong, and. I found an article that I wrote for Credo, I think in 2013. So it's been about a decade ago, where I was asked to respond to Walls 
and his Protestant version of purgatory. And so I did. I've still got it. And um, um, I can't help but go, hmm. Back then, I was not asked to address the subject from the position of the great tradition. (laughs) Because it's sort of hard not to, it's sort of hard to argue against the idea that purgatory is a part of the great tradition, isn't it? And in fact, let me just comment here. I'll, I'll come back to this because I do want to address indulgentiarum doctrina, but I was just thinking this morning, I was seeing some stuff from my, you know, I'm hearing a lot about how my fellow Baptists in various seminaries, not all, but in various seminaries, are doing what they can to try to insulate their students from me. Um, telling people I believe things I don't believe, and they know it. Come on, guys, you know. You know it in your heart of hearts. Uh, but telling telling students I believe things I don't believe and, and just, just trying to minimize whatever impact I might have. Because the fact of the matter is, what we've been teaching for years and years and years here would be an impediment uh, to anyone who is seeking to change the trajectory of a seminary away from one that is very biblicist in a historically knowledgeable and reformed fashion to, well, a, a perspective that I may get to later on, I'm not sure, a perspective that 20 years ago, we were engaging fairly regularly with when there was a, a brief renaissance of a reformed Catholicism, reformed Catholicism. This was after the federal vision stuff. And we, we, we went fork and tongue at that for quite some time as well. And it never goes away. There is, I'm thinking of a, a certain bearded Reformed Baptist seminary student on uh, Twitter that has become just enraptured with Thomas. And I noticed recently his avatar has changed to a, uh, not AI, well, it might be AI, I don't know, uh, but a drawing of his face uh, wearing the clothes that you will normally see in an Eastern Orthodox um, icon. This is a Reformed Baptist. And I certainly noticed it. <laughs> I'm sitting there going, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Um, we're, we're seeing this, this kind of stuff. And I, let, let me just, let me say it again. Infant baptism is the great tradition. Will anyone argue that? I mean, I can argue that that means the great tradition doesn't go go back to the apostles because there's that big old gap and then there's the development and there's the delay of baptism. There's all that church history stuff (laughs) that you got to get into back there in the primitive period. Um, But once you get the great, great tradition, 
uh, it, it's it's pedo Baptist, and it's 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 pedo Baptist for reasons that believing Presbyterians could not embrace either. Um, and so if you're a Baptist and you try to do the great tradition thing, you're not a pedo Baptist because you're holding the great tradition up to a standard. What was that? What was that standard? I, oh, it's, oh, oh, the Bible. Yeah. It makes you a biblicist because you're, you're testing the great tradition by, by the Bible. And if you do it there, why wouldn't you do it in other places? I mean, you, you want to try to be consistent. So, so you're going to say, we're not going to be biblicists in theology proper, but we will be biblicists in ecclesiology, sacramentology, soteriology. We'll be biblicists in everything else, but we won't be biblicists here. Oh. Yeah, you know, that's not going to work. It's It's just not going to work. And so I, I just chuckle every time I, I hear, see these guys playing games, pretending. And it's like, if you're going to be consistent, you're not going to remain where you are. You're just not. So anyway, um, indulgentiarum doctrina, sorry. Uh, I haven't talked about it for a long, long time. And, and What's obvious to me is the vast majority of my Reformed brethren have never read Indulgentiarum Doctrina. It's spelled as it sounds, if you know Latin. Look it up. You can pull it right off the uh, website. It's 1967, so it's a post-Vatican II uh, apostolic constitution. And I don't know how much of it Francis would actually believe. He, he proclaimed... Um, a bunch of indulgences just last year, as I recall. But he may just view that as some type of pietistic practice, too. I, you know. But if you actually read it, uh, and I'm going to have to zoom in on it here. Uh, zoom. Zoom in. Oh, it's a little bit better. I'm having to learn how to use all that stuff on the computer. That make the font bigger. <laughs> it's so small anymore. Uh, I'll be at 640 by 40 resolution before Christmas. Anyway, let me read you some sections from Indulgentiarum Doctrina. Sins must be expiated. This may be done on this earth through the sorrows, miseries, and trials of this life and above all, through death. Otherwise, the expiation must be made in the next life through fire and torments or purifying punishments. The reasons for their imposition are that souls need to be purified. Okay? Um, there's, a, there's a huge... And this is why the debate with uh, Peter Stravinskis was so pivotal. And why it was... It made... A, a clearer delineation between the gospel of grace and the Roman Catholic gospel than had been made in the debates we had done on justification by faith. Um, how 
we are perfected, how our sins are forgiven, what expiation means, how expiation is different from propitiation, uh, the meaning of the imputed righteousness of Christ, it's all, it really comes into focus when you look at the doctrine of indulgences. We continue on. The doctrine of purgatory clearly demonstrates that even when the guilt of sin has been taken away, punishment for it or the consequences of it may remain to be expiated or cleansed. They often are. In fact, in purgatory, the souls of those who died in the charity of God and truly repentant, but who had not made satisfaction with adequate penance for their sins and omissions are cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away their debt. So this is where you you get different kinds of sins, uh, expiation, penance, um, the whole sacramental system that developed over a long period of time, a very, very long period of time. Uh, It was not really until the 13th, 14th century where you finally get all this stuff coming into its, primarily its modern form. So, cleansed after death with punishments designed to purge away their debt. This is, in the Latin tongue, what's known as satispatio, the suffering of atonement. Now, I've met a lot of Roman Catholics, I will admit, who were unfamiliar with the terminology. You should be familiar with it. Um, Satispatio, suffering of atonement. The document goes on to refer to the saints who have carried their crosses to make expiation for their own sins and the sins of others. And the sins of others. So here... Then, this is how Indulgentiarum Doctrina defines the thesaurus meritorum, the treasury of the church, treasury of merit. Here's the, here's the definition. On the contrary, the treasury of the church is the infinite value, which can never be exhausted, which Christ merits have before God. This treasury includes as well the prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. They are truly immense, unfathomable, and even pristine in their value before God. In the treasury, too, are the prayers and good works of all the saints. All those who have followed in the footsteps of Christ the Lord and by his grace have made their lives holy and carried out the mission the Father entrusted to them. In this way, they attained their own salvation and at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. So, here you have this thesaurus meritorum, the treasury of merit. And it has the excess merits of Christ, because as one of the popes said, Christ only needed to shed a single drop of blood to propitiate the wrath of God. But since he shed his blood copiously, there is this Excess merit that comes into existence. But it's not just the merit of Christ. It's the immense and unfathomable and even pristine uh, prayers and good works of the Blessed Virgin Mary. 
who, because she was immaculately conceived, uh, did not have the burden of sin and therefore would be able to commit all sorts of good deeds in a complete state of purity. But then all the saints, when you die as a saint, which means you have more good works than you have um, temporal punishments to be purged, um, that excess merit that you possess is also placed into the treasury of merit. And this is where the merit and comes from that an indulgence is a, it's a transfer from the treasury merit to your own account. And that's how these saints attain their own salvation at the same time cooperated in saving their brothers in the unity of the mystical body. So that's, that's how this, this works. Um, so, uh, Indulgentiarum Doctrina goes on quoting from the papal bull of Boniface VIII. For God's only begotten son has won a treasure for the militant church and has entrusted it to blessed Peter, the key bearer of heaven and to his successors who are Christ's vicars on earth so that they may distribute it to the faithful for their salvation. So here you see all these different threads of development over time coming together. So you have uh, blessed Peter, the key bearer of heaven. Key bearer of heaven? Yeah, I remember that in scripture. But anyway, um, and to his successors, us today, which would include Pope Boniface VIII, as he's claiming, who are Christ's vicars on earth, representatives of Christ on earth, so that they may distribute it to the faithful for their salvation. And for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> that's how it got built. <clears throat> uh, by charging money for it. Which Trent technically sort of stopped. Sort of. In a way. So. The document continues on and says. In addition, we ought not to forget that when they try to gain indulgences. The faithful submit with docility to the lawful pastors of the church. Above all, they acknowledge the authority of the successor of blessed Peter, the key bearer of heaven. Okay. It continues on to say, the beneficial institution of indulgences therefore does its part in bringing it about that the church might be presented to Christ without spot or wrinkle, but holy and without blemish, Excellently united with Christ in the supernatural bond of charity. And I thought that's what Christ accomplished by his spirit. Oh, but yes, it is Christ doing it by his spirit, but it's through indulgences. Which, of course, no apostle ever even dreamed of. But that's what happens when you deny sola scriptura and you embrace tradition. What happens? Um, the document even cites Ephesians five twenty seven, and uh, which reads that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Unfortunately, as I commented, this is actually I'm reading from the Roman Catholic controversy. 
Unfortunately, the infallible church seems to have missed the context of this passage provided by the preceding verses. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Not by purgatory, not by satispasio, not by a mixed merit of Christ, Mary, and the saints. Washing the water with the word. And so there you have very clearly just just the massive distinction between the Roman understanding of grace and the biblical understanding of grace. Um, So it uh, continues on. In fact, in granting indulgence, the church used its power as minister of Christ's redemption. It not only prays, it intervenes with its authority to dispense the faithful, provided they have the right dispositions, the treasury of satisfaction, which Christ and the saints won for the remission of temporal punishments. Moreover, the religious practice of indulgences arouses again confidence and hope that we can be... (laughs) Slow down here. Moreover, the religious practice of indulgences arouses again confidence and hope that we can be fully reconciled with the Father. Really. That's what an indulgence does. Walk through a special door that's only opened up once every few years. Get an indulgence and that's going to increase your hope and confidence that you can be fully reconciled to the Father. Do you see now why I say to Roman Catholics all the time, are you the blessed man? Are you the blessed man of Romans 4.8, to whom the Lord will not impute sin? Because, and, and so you read Thomas Aquinas. He doesn't get it. He doesn't see it. He's talking about different kinds of sin. Completely misses it. All these people. Oh, what a wonderful exegete. Completely missed it. Are you the blessed man? Because Paul's argument is every single believer is the blessed man. That's how you are in Christ. That's how you have peace. That's, how, that's what the gospel is. And if you're not the blessed man, you don't have peace with God. An indulgence will not provide confidence and hope that you can be fully reconciled to the Father. That's what the cross did. An indulgence is a distraction from and a detraction from the finished work of Christ. No question about it. No question about it. Um, back to indulgentiarum doctrina. I wasn't going to do all this, but why not? We've done it, so we're going to do it. To gain indulgences, the work prescribed must be done, but that is not all. The faithful must have the dispositions that are necessary. These are, they must love God, hate sin, trust in Christ's merits, and believe firmly in the great help they obtain from the communion of saints. So those are the dispositions you must have. Uh, You must love God, but that's not enough. You must hate sin, but that's not enough. You must trust in Christ's merits, but that's not enough. You must believe firmly in the great help they obtain from the communion of saints. What do you mean the communion of saints? 
Well, that, that's how the, the saints are helping to save their brethren is by that excess merit goes into the treasury of merit. Now it's commitment. A plenary indulgence applicable only to the dead. This is, again, indulgentiarum doctrina. A plenary indulgence applicable only to the dead can be gained in all churches and public oratories and in semi-public oratories by those who have the right to use them on November 2nd. On November 2nd. Hmm. A plenary indulgence, a withdrawal of grace, merit from the treasury of merit. November 2nd. Hope you make it. <laughs> um, supported by these truths, Holy Mother Church again recommends the practice of indulgences to the faithful. The church recommends its faithful not to abandon or neglect the holy traditions of those who have gone before. This is Indulgentiarum Doctrina. This is post-Vatican II. And that's what I said to Jason Stallman. You have to believe this. You can't go halfway. You have to believe this stuff. And that's why I have I, I say to any person who has claimed to be reformed, who then casts their, their eyes across the Tiber River, starts looking at the beautiful buildings, and the marble statues, and the great tradition. And I go, this is the great tradition, and it stinks. If you can read that document and not be revolted by its denial of the finished work of Christ and the perfection of his righteousness, it's part of the great tradition. How do you, how do you judge it? Well, that's 1967, the great tradition. When did the great tradition stop? How do you know? Who gets to judge? Who gets to judge? Who gets to say, well, on these things here, okay, soteriology, I mean, the material principle of the Reformation was soteriological. But to substantiate the material, sola fide, to substantiate the material, very quickly, thanks to Johann Eck, Luther had to deal, and Zwingli was already dealing with it as well, had to deal with the formal principle, the foundational principle. Because if you believe this, then you have no way of going well, that's wrong because of this. Because what, what this is arguing is that this is dangerously unclear and will lead you astray. And there's all sorts of pre-Vatican II uh, quotes that I could dig up for you on the danger of the personal interpretation of Scripture. So you can't judge the great tradition based upon this. So how? I, I need something else. Oh, it must be the magisterium of the church, which again, right now, I just, I just go, how are you making this argument right now with Francis? How are you doing this? Because 
anybody who has done almost any, and well, this is one of the main reasons. It's one of the main reasons. These neo-Thomas, they may be reading Thomas now. They're not reading modern Roman Catholic stuff. They're not reading uh, Bellarmine. They're not, they're not dealing with kinds of tradition and Newman and all the stuff that got us to where we are today. They'll do that once, <laughs> once they decide to go that direction. But they're not reading this stuff. I wonder how many of these Neo-Thomas have ever read Indulgentiarum Doctrine. I would just ask you. My Reformed Baptist brethren, have you read Indulgentiarum Doctrine? Show me the formal principle you use by which to evaluate Indulgentiarum Doctrine. And I will show you and I will and I will turn a mirror on you going biblicist. Because you it's all, that's the only way you can do it. <laughs> right? That's the only way you can do it. The only way you can do it consistently. Now you might be sitting there going, well, you know, I would see here's here's where you're stuck. <laughs> here's where you're stuck. Because if you want to sit there and go, well. I wouldn't allow for the great tradition to go that far. If you let it go to the 13th century, you're, you're going to be stuck. And you know you have to let it go, at least to Thomas, right? And if it, it, and if it, if it stopped with Thomas, why? On what principle? What, what specific objective standard do you have? To say, I'm going to buy the great tradition through Thomas. And then, is it, was it the Reformation? Why, why would the Reformation be the stopping point? Because the Reformation rejected so much. Why would that be the stopping point? If you could try to say the, great, the, the, the Reformation was a continuation of the best of the great tradition. Again, by, heard this phrase somewhere before. I don't think I've made up this phrase, but by what standard? By what standard do you make that decision? See, I, since I start with this, start here, okay? Then I can, and this is what I've always done. And it's all, it's what I'm going to keep doing for as long as the Lord allows me to. And that's why I am persona non grata in places that I used to be well loved and accepted. Is I start here. And that allowed me to, you know, read Augustine and go, oh, wow, that's, whoa, that's great. Oh, that's good. That's good. And then you turn the page and go, yeah, clinker. Clinker. Because I do that with modern writers too. Because I have a consistent standard because it's unchanging and it happens to be Theodostos. God breathed. Uh, which does not mean life-giving. But that's another issue. Um, and that's what I've been teaching all along. And that's always made me dangerous to anybody 
who had their own agenda. And as long as all of us were heading down the same path and our agenda was, let's get the truth out there, then it's all good. And then all of a sudden you change directions and uh, now it's not all good. Strange how that works. So anyway, um, one other thing I do need to get to, and I, I should have gotten to it before this, but I, I wanted to sort of finish that up. There is this complete shift of topic here, and most people say, ah, just wrap it up. It's been an hour. Um, I can't because there's something really amazingly, I don't want to use the term frightening. God's in control. But it is, I think, one of the clearest examples of the fact that the culture of death is in full control in Western culture, and they have decided no more hiding, no more going slow. This is our shot. We're going to do it now. Minnesota, California, Washington State. All of them, and let me see here if I have, in California, this is AB665. AB665. Um, this was an article from Chris Bray, but I've seen it from a number of other sources. He says, uh, I wrote about AB665 last month warning parents that its passage would mean your children can vanish into mental health care facilities, residential shelter services, is the term being used, without your consent. Um, This, uh, Scott Wiener is a part of it. If Scott Wiener is a part of it, it is evil. Scott Wiener is, without a question, one of the most evil men um, in the United States today. I've seen a number of, uh, I don't have all of them here, but I saw a number of the um, photocopies. Uh so there's three different bills, but they're all going the same direction. And fundamentally, what these bills... Now, are, are they going to pass right now? Probably not. Um, if Would they end up at the Supreme Court? They most certainly would. But you just need to understand, the Supreme Court is... It was never meant to be functioning the way it's mentioning, functioning right now. First of all, and secondly, one death and everything changes and nobody lives forever. And these bills would give to the state the right to remove your children from your home if it was found that you are not providing to them the appropriate gender care. So if your 13-year-old daughter behind your back gets access to TikTok and YouTube 
and the groomers, and they're everywhere, um, take advantage of teen angst and imbalanced hormones to convince her that she's actually a boy. And you don't go along and you don't take her in to have her breasts cut off and have her body mutilated and to make her a lifelong, unhealthy, dying patient because that's what this stuff is. It doesn't matter if you're doing it to the boy, if you're doing it to the girl, you inject Lupron into somebody, you are fundamentally damaging for the rest of their life, which will be a much shorter life, their health, their well-being, their future, everything. It's gone. It's gone. Transitioning is a lie out of hell. And anybody with the slightest knowledge in the medical field knows it. And the only people defending are the people who are making millions and millions and billions of dollars. But you know what? It's not the money. Some of them it is. It's not so much the money. It's the promotion of the culture of death. Just think, just think of how exciting it is to those who love death to get teenagers to destroy their capacity to procreate before they do it. Oh, it's wonderful. Emasculate that boy. Destroy that that girl. Make sure she can never have children. Make sure he can never father children. Culture of death. And the leftists who worship in the altar of the culture of death in California. Well, we know that. That's Sacramento. I mean... Can you imagine a, a greater coven of, of death? What, what, was the, what was it in Riddick? Death Eaters? Is that what it's called? I forget what it was. Anyway, you expect this coming out of California. Washington State? Minnesota. Man, I was born in Minnesota. But it's trying to compete with the others. Can we become absolutely, you know, can we just move our, our allegiance to China? Because that's where all these people are going anyway. Anyway, these three states have bills being proposed right now that would grant to the state the right to, to come in and take your children and mutilate their bodies. Um, I know what I'm going to do as a grandfather if the state comes after my grandkids. Um, you see what's going on in, in France. We are... <laughs> the, the difference between here and France is that we're still armed. And the French aren't. So they're throwing rocks and making up Molotov cocktails and using uh, umbrellas. <laughs> if you've seen the, 
the jackbooted thugs running into the crowds, you know, beating people and they're hiding behind umbrellas. Umbrellas don't really work real well. They just really don't. Um, but when, and, and people say, but, but, but judges would never allow that. Where are the judges coming from? Have you looked at our Ivy League schools? Have you looked at our law schools today? What are they being taught? The culture of death. The culture of death. Um, will, will these be passed right now? I don't know. Anything's possible these days. I don't trust. I don't trust elections. I don't trust any of that stuff. Not anymore. Are they unconstitutional? Of course. Does it matter? No. They don't care. The, 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 the state, if, if there's anything that the state detests, it's restraint upon its own power, which is what the Constitution was designed to do initially. But as long as you have a large enough minority within a nation that wants to subvert the laws of that nation, those laws will be subverted, and they are. Look at our southern border. That's against the law, what's happening. But it's happening because the people in charge are traitors. So can this type of stuff be be passed soon? Certainly would seem to be a, a tremendous possibility. I th- there's only one answer because I mean this this once the state can do this, we are we are making the Soviets look like amateurs. So what happens then? Well, the United States is a little bit of a different context. A lot more complicated. A lot more complicated. You know, I was thinking as well today in light of the school shooting. First of all, we haven't we learned yet to wait till the facts come out? There's obviously all sorts of, I mean, a 28-year-old woman? Maybe she identified as a guy. Well, will they then count it as a male? If they, if they go on this, this woman's social media and find out that she identified as a man, will they actually change that? Oh, this wasn't an exception. But all sorts of details that clearly, you know. But why is it always schools? Because it's the culture of death. It's a, it's, it's, it's a demonic, satanic love of death. Abortion, transgenderism, all of it. It's a love of death. We see it all around us, but the secular mind... Cannot make the cannot make connections, and I don't see a lot of Christians making the connections either. We may read it, but if we don't allow it to form our worldview, we won't get it. We won't get it. That's the way it is. All right, I had a bunch of other stuff queued up here. I was going to get to Corey Allen Byram. I'll get to him eventually. Um, but 
Um, I've gone over enough. So uh, please pray for uh, the debate this weekend and the presentations we're doing. Uh, I'll actually be addressing stuff relevant to Bart Ehrman and the reliability of Scripture and stuff in uh, southern Utah, very heavily conservative Mormon area. And uh, then the Easter pageant of the Mormon Church starts next week here in, in Mesa. I'm really sad I'm going to miss almost all of it. I hopefully will get an opportunity to be out there. I'm not going to say which night, <laughs> because then the King James only people show up. Um, but uh, pray for apologia, especially as we will have all sorts of people. We've spent the past two Sunday sermons on the subject. Uh, there's been two training seminars. There's been a lot of preparation. And so uh, we get a lot of folks out there. So just pray for the opportunity for uh, conversations. I just I just remember, I think it was last year. might have been the year before, but I think it was last year. Um, yeah, it was last year. Uh, I was in Cedar City again, same weekend. And uh, I have a picture of my one of my granddaughters, Clementine, talking to a uh, LDS cop at the, uh, at the pageant. And I just, it just freaked me out because I have a picture of me talking to an LDS cop in Mesa on the same corner. And I was, what was it, 12 years? I was like 12 or 13 years older than she is now. And I'm just like, wow, circle of life. <laughs> it continues on. It really, really does. And I so clearly remember summer out there. And uh, the conversations she had, and especially conversation we had with a guy named Steel. I think it was Steel. It wasn't Iron. It was Steel. For some reason, Iron is talking about um, But, you know, those those trips out to Mesa, they meant a lot to my kids. That was, that was a real, and now they're, you know, summers, the kids are out there uh, doing the same thing. And it's, uh, it's pretty fantastic. It really is. So uh, that'll be the week after Easter, which is no week after general conference, sorry, week before going up to um, Easter, which is late this year into April. That always messed us up when we were going up to, Salt Lake and stuff like that as to how we were going to cover everything. But, but that's, uh, that's coming up next week. So pray for that. Um, and uh, we appreciate all the support that you all give us. Hopefully today's been useful to you. We'll see you the next time on The Dividing Line. God bless.